לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. כל רמה, מאה ושתיים שלוש, of Parsha Talk. We should really call this Pesach Talk. Parsha Pesach, the Pesach edition. I'm Rabbi Elliot Malman in Highland Park, New Jersey, and joining me my good friends, Rabbi Barry Chesler out there in Long Island. Barry, Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanowski in New York City, Janshe Chesed. Great to see you both. Great We're enjoying Pesach here. We're getting ready for the second set of days, day seven, day eight, diaspora here. We're not you know that, uh, that. You know what? Day seven. Day seven. We're going to focus on some of the highlights of what takes place in shul on day seven. Um, and Ellie, can I say one thing? You know, it's, it's Parsha talk, Pesach edition. It's a it's a commonplace under in Hasidic literature that the name of the holiday is Pesach, the speaking uh-uh. mouth. So. Parsha talk is about the Pesach. Pesach. Very cool. Well, speaking of Hasidic traditions, you know, we didn't talk about this as we were preparing for this, but there is a Hasidic tradition, I have heard, of um, during the seventh day of Pesach and and reading or uh, reciting Shirat Ayam, the Song of the Sea, that the Rebbe uh, actually walks through the congregation and the people split they they split, I, I have, they split have, in the sense that they walk out <laughs> i have seen this is absolutely one of the unforgettable and crazy things that i have seen in jewish tradition so the jerusalem hasidim sometimes called reb arla's hasidim they were of, of reb arla rat these are these are ex, these are the extremists the other extremists think they're poor um <laughs> And they, if, if you've seen the Hasidim, like sometimes they wear um, a sort of a tan coat with a little blue pinstripe. That's yeah. that's Reb Arla's Hasidim or the or the you know old Yerushalayim Hasidim. And Reb Arla Rat, his I think he died relatively recently. I think he died into the like 1930s or something like that. Um, he he's all about faith against the absurd. Like it's all about just. Just throw yourself against against all impossibility and faith, and and so at late, 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 late night on on the Shri Shopesach, um, they have this primal scream thing. And when I went, the year that I went, the Rebbe was very, very old, so he didn't. They they explained to me that usually they do that splitting thing that you just said. He was not capable. But what they did was a call and response, and it lasted like probably, you know, probably a half an hour at least, verse by verse, somebody screams the pasuk from Shirat Hayam, and the whole kahal screams back. And it was, it was like, I mean, I'm sure there were like, I don't know how to estimate, but they were probably, you know, 3,000 people in the room or not, not something you'd want to do in the age of COVID. But... Um, so what did it do for you? It was... Um, what did it do for me? That's a good question. It was... Um, 
very moving to see people for people to simply lose all restraint and give themselves up in in a kind of ecstasy of faith and ecstasy of of religion was really quite unforgettable a further uh, question though so that's you as the observer yeah what about as a participant did it move you in any way It's not been a long time, so I'm having some difficulty remembering. But, um, but I definitely never lost the feeling of being an outsider. Because how could you possibly lose the feeling of being an outsider in that group? But, but to you know, to to just lose to lose your restraint and say "Micha Mocha Veli Madonai" was a yeah. That was just like let it out, just scream "Micha Mocha." Wow, that was that was it was also a feeling of uh, cathartic ecstatic release. If admittedly, as as a, an observer. Okay, so there's another Hasidic tradition I believe that is sometimes used as an illustration of kavanah, and this go is about Shirat Hayam, but actually is part of the morning tefillah where Shirat Hayam appears. Is that there would be people who would roll up their pants <laughs> before they would recite Azra Shir so that they wouldn't get wet. You know, it, it's so fascinating that we have these rituals connected to Shiratayam. And and you know, when we normally talk about the parsha, we talk we get into the, the verses, we get into the uh, mm-hmm. the drama and the characters and, and the text itself. But um, here obviously the reading of the parsha on this day represents something beyond just the Parsha. I, I, Barry, I want you to talk about this because I think it's really important for us to understand the, that at some point, religion has to be based on a miracle. So I think that the Shirat Hayam is an essential part of Pesach. And we forget about this sometimes because we live in Galut and we have an eighth day. But the crossing of the Sea of Reeds and looking back in wonder and seeing the dead Egyptians and exploding into this jubilant song is actually the completion of the Exodus, that everything has led up to that moment when they cross over and they and they sing. And... You know, I remarked before, I often remarked that this is the paradigmatic miracle in the Torah, the crossing of the sea reeds, and yet it has two explanations in the Torah itself. One is that Moshe raises his staff and the waters miraculously split, and the other is that God causes an east wind to blow all night and it holds the waters back, which we can understand as a, a natural explanation. But I think that, you know, it occurred to me today that there has to be some sense of transcendence, that we cannot explain everything rationally and think that we're going to solve all of our problems ourselves as human beings without reaching out for what in religion we call the divine, that that is the core of religion and therefore also the core of Judaism. Jeremy, you have a take on this in terms of, so this, I mean, with, 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 you know, the ritual and the sense of transcendence that you may have experienced in either a reenactment of it or a recitation of it, 
Um, we are trying to reach for something here, and we're trying to reach for the miraculous aspect of this experience. I, and I do certainly agree that um, that religion, to be religious, uh, needs elements of transcendence. I don't think that it's adequate, at least not for me, um, to say that that uh, you know all the all of the wisdom in the world is human wisdom or accessible to human wisdom. That 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 all of the power in the world is human power accessible to human power. Uh, to be a religious person, I do think you need to recognize that there is some uh, force and power, some wisdom that you can have only when you encounter a, a non-human reality. So I, I definitely believe that there has to be a non-human reality. Shir Hashir, uh, Shir Hayam and Exodus, you know, chapter 14 and 15, don't, for me, really work on the the level of more than the poetic like the poetic it's just so incredibly powerful that they have this birth imagery that they cross an they cross the uncrossable obstacle they escape from the the, the foe that they cannot escape from and at the other side they they cross over and they look back and they see Mitzrayim met al-sfatayam and they see that Egypt is at last behind them um, but as an event, it's so like supernatural that uh, that I that I that I find it that it works just as as a powerful story, but not something that I can look back to and say this is a thing that happened <laughs> to the Jewish people. Uh, whereas Revelation and Exodus from Egypt, I think those things they, they have to um, exist in the lives that human beings build and discover, right? The human beings discover a wisdom that is beyond their own, that teaches them, that human beings discover the, the possibility of the victimized escaping their, their torture, um, and that that feels like it's the divine, the divine teaching them, the divine leading them, and that's the part that really works for me on a much, on a much more like, uh, on, a, on a much more factual, so to speak, or tangible level. I, I want to just uh, seize on this idea of, of the boundary. I, 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 the miracle part of it is something that, of course, uh, you know, we, we enter into our imaginative moment. We, we, you know, we read the Torah and we are stepping into a, a, a different world. It's part imaginative. It's certainly a spiritual, it's a religious world. We're, we're stepping into the, these, these characters and the lives of these characters and you know, uh, in in the leap of belief here, we are standing at the banks of the uh, of the Sea of Reeds, and we are walking through, and we are coming to the other side. and And I think what what the story demands of us, and here I'll play the storyteller. The story demands of us to imagine ourselves as if we are in fact standing there, and gives us the paradigm of boundary, that, that the Sea of Reeds represents for us an element of the story that is so critical and frankly critical to many of the other biblical stories in which the characters cross over boundaries. And now that we have crossed over this boundary as a people, 
we're on the other side and life begins on the other side, Barry. I want to add one other thing. So I, I like very much what Jeremy said about the poetry and the, but it's worth thinking about some of the actual psukim as we, as we discuss this, because your point, Elliot, is that we get to the other side and that's a clear boundary. But the poetry seems to preserve the sense of actually going through the Sea of Reeds itself. It's, in other words, we're on a journey and there are discrete moments. And I was thinking about this while you were both talking, that we have these contrary images of God. We have Adonai Ishmochama, God is the man of war. And then we have Mikamoch Adonai Nedar Bakodesh, who is like God clothed in man holiness. And it's hard to square those two images, this militant God and a holy God, because I don't think we're talking here about a holy war. Um, there are other parts of the Bible that talk about that. But that there is a jumble of emotions as people are crossing through. And people are trying to process what's happening to them. And then, you know, let's face it, for us, we understand that this is a poem that's written after the event. It's not someone on their iPad jotting down notes that they're going to weave into a poem as soon as they get to the other side to preserve that moment-by-moment -moment thing. I mean, this is real artistry, and it is an attempt, I think, to make us think that, to make us think actually that we are walking through with our ancestors, which I think is of utmost importance. I often point out, you know, that there is a visual pun going on in the text of the Torah itself, because you have the the words Uvene Israel and you have the words Bayam Bayam and on two sides of the of the line and Bene Israel inside it. It's a really cool kind of thing. But but so I want to go back to this because I think that uh, this is right before the 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 recitation of the song. So it says uh, the water covers everything. Not a single one of them is left. The children of Israel walk on the dry land in the sea. The water was a wall on their right and their left. And then it says the next verse that, that we say every day. God saved Israel from the Egyptians. Israel saw Egypt so they saw Israel, they saw Egypt dead on the banks of the sea. That, that's got to stop you there. I mean, and then the very next verse, Israel saw God's outstretched arm. They, they fear God. And they believe in God and Moses, his servant. Can you take me philosophically, theologically, spiritually from that moment? Can you imagine yourself now at the bank seeing the, the, the terror of it and then the uh, exaltation? It's interesting to speculate what really is the miracle here. Yeah. It's the crossing or the fact that the waters recede and cover the Egyptians. So when the Israelites are marching through, however they're getting through, on one hand, they know that they're rushing to safety. On the other hand, they know that if they could do it, so could the Egyptians. 
Yeah. It's not until the waters cover the Egyptians that they understand that it was a path only for them. So let me let me just interrupt and say the word is Bayar Yisrael et Mitzrayim. The Israel sees Mitzrayim. They don't see Mitzrim. They see Egypt. And maybe is that is that I mean obviously they are Egyptians, but they're seeing that there's a part of them that's that's gone now, that that's dead. The part that that the part that enslaved them, the part that was just terrorizing their lives, that's dead. You know. That's exactly. I think that's what it is exactly. That so so. There's another possible shot, which is. It's like, man, it was like like all of Egypt was out there. It was like it's so such a throng that it looked like all of Egypt. But yeah, I think I think that the experience of the liberation is that Egypt is really finally at last dead to them. Now they got, and, now they got a new challenge. Yeah, the other point we have to make here is that for this generation, they're going to have no other encounter with Egypt or an Egyptian again. Okay. They, yeah, so have, they see yeah. Egypt dead because there's no one left yeah. now and within their lifetimes. So they are going to have adversaries in the desert. Amalek is right there. Uh, and of course, once we get into the book of Numbers, you know, Moab, Ammon, the, the, the works, they're all going to be there. Um, but this is, this is the first time that they are free. Um, how do you go from that terror to elation? You know, do, do we do that? I mean, it, it's, is, it, is it something that we've ever experienced really or something that we can really, liberation? You know, we, we, we are so fixed on, and of course we have Yom HaShoah coming up in a week also, so we, we, we tend to make associations. At the liberation of Auschwitz, people just didn't, they didn't know what to do. They didn't jump for joy. Well, they couldn't. They couldn't. I mean, physically, they, they couldn't. But I would say that, um, to me, the, the small detail is, Vatikach Miriam et Hanivia et Hatupim biyada Vatitena kala anashim achara batupim ubim cholot that Miriam the prophet took out the, the tambourine in her hand and all the women came behind her with their tambourines and they're dancing. They packed tambourines. Like, unlike Auschwitz, who when they left, um, when they, you know, were imprisoned in concentration camps, they had nothing, they, they you know, were barely surviving. At some point, the, uh, you know, Miriam and whatever the other, the other people with her um, planned for music. And to me, that's a, just a, a lovely little detail that suggests that they expected that there was going to be time for singing. Um, whatever. So I just think I think that uh, well, you're, there's a little act of faith embedded in that little detail. So that's a good way to, to segue to the second part of it. You know, there was a certain life affirmation. It's not an accident that it comes, you know, with the women. And the women are so deeply associated with um, both the redemption and... and uh, the meritorious women that were themselves responsible uh, for for the exodus to begin with, you know, um, and and the notion that there is song and there is exaltation and that there is love and that there is a way that the people connect to each other with love and uh, reflect on their relationship with God 
through the metaphor of love. And here, of course, I'm referring to Shira Shirim, which is, while not always on the seventh day this year, happens to be the seventh day because it is Shabbat. But um, we, we need to talk about Shira Shirim because Shira Shirim is just so emblematic of, of the next period of the calendar that we're going into. Um, and it reflects one aspect of the relationship of God and Israel, especially as it is reflected in um, in the holiday of Pesach. Before we leave the Song of the Sea, I want to make one other point. I suggested once many years ago that Miriam was the first cantor because she led the community in song. But the other aspect here that I think is worthy of note is that she dances and plays music, both forms of art that are not expressed in words because the immediate, the spontaneous reaction to this salvation, you can't articulate. You can express yourself, but it's very difficult to put it into words. Yeah, but they're, they're, words so they're, only come later. Okay, so they're but they're singing the words. They're singing. Right, but I was commenting. You know, Jeremy mentioned the instruments, which were right. the critical piece here. Indeed, indeed. Okay, so speaking of instruments and speaking of song and speaking of instrumentality and metaphor and the place of the Song of Songs here on Pesach. Why? What's it? What's it doing here? Why? Why are we? You know, we 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 do associate the these different books of the five scrolls with different holidays. Why Pesach? Why Shira Shirim? Take it. Jeremy. Well, Kohelet doesn't really work for Passover. It's not. <laughs> But <laughs> doesn't really work for anything. Eicha. How about Echa? Echa. Echa should be. Lamentations. Uh, so it's, it's, uh, oh man, I just think it's, it's wonderful. It's perfect. You know, uh, um, you know, the, it's, it's, Hageshem Chalaf Halachlo, Koator Nishma Bat Seinu Vetas Amir Higia. You know the the uh, the the rains have gone away, and the voice of the turtle dove. It's the time of love, and it's true in the world. And spring comes, and that's this after after a cold, or well, we hope it'll be a cold, wet, wet rainy winter in Eretz Yisrael. Um, it's the flowers are blossoming, and with that comes young love and and human eros and. Um, and so Shira Shirim works on the on the natural level because you know let's go see have the have the figs given forth their blossoms is, are the grapevines in blossom yet um, and that's you know part part of the natural waking up in spring after winter and um, the relationship of the two lovers in the song. Um, Interestingly, by the way, never consummated. The the the, the lovers in Shirashirim are always seeking, never finding, or running away and just barely missing. Um, it comes to symbolize in Jewish tradition the the passionate love of God and Israel. Uh, I would say, you know, with my with my little bit more mystical orientation, um, the worshippers of Israel and their passionate love and delighted love of God, as well as the metaphorical or allegorical, you know, Jewish people, Knesset Yisrael and the divine, or in a real Kabbalistic sense, the divine female and the divine male. But those feelings of, of 
of ecstasy and and arousal and joy and delight and all of that stuff is not foreign to worship. It's not, you know, we're not all, you know, super celibate uh, people. Um, we're actually called upon through Shira Shirin to bring some of those otherwise, um, you know, loving and delighted feelings into worship. So, so the relationship between God and Israel is uh, yeah. symbolized through this loving relationship. It's really um, a marital relationship, not even a marital relationship. It's also the, the relationship of lovers. So, so I would like to ask whether or not that, that is a audacious, you know, to, to even imagine that, and B, whether it's accessible. I mean, so let me ask it this way. How, how audacious was it for people like Rabbi Akiva, who, you know, said upon Shir Shireen, uh, that, you know, if all the Torah and all the Tanakh is the holy, this is the holy of holies. This, this book represents something holy. And, and how remarkable is that kind of statement allegorizing God and the Jewish people as the two lovers. And so we don't really we don't really know enough about the rabbis' internal lives. I think to answer that question definitively, we don't ever really get a sense. I don't think of the erotic nature of Rabbi Akiva's life. So when he says that Shira Shirim is like the holy of holies, is he referring to the erotic? Part of Shira Shirim or the allegorical part of Shira Shirim? Certainly animated by love. He made, well, he so what I wanted to suggest is that Pesach is the act of passing over and delivering the people is an act of love. The problem for us, I think, is that the way most of us think about Pesach, Pesach was a one-time event. That happened long ago. We're invited, as we discussed last week, to think about ourselves ke'ilu as if we had left Egypt. But love is perennial and annual. It is part. It can be part of our daily life. And no matter how far we may be from love at any moment in our life, we can grasp it in the next moment. That's what about what about that explosion? What about that? You know the. That inflame, engulf and flame love, that passion, that moment of you know ignition, that's also there. I mean, that's what what this book is about, Shirim. Yeah, bikashti. You you were quoting that. You know, I, I'm at night. I was seeking bikashti I'm looking for. I'm looking for him. I can't find him. You know, this this unrequited desire or this unfulfilled desire, longing. By the way, the only the, the only word. The only, you know, Shira Shirim gives a, gives a little bit of a run for Esther being the book that doesn't mention the divine, except at the end, Rishafeha Rishpeish Shel Hevet Ya. So the the what Elliot was saying about the flaming up, you know, love is is Kasha Kishinol Kina Kasha Kishaol Kina. It's hard as death, Azakamavet strong, you know. Uh, Strong as, as hell and strong as 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 death, its fires are shalhevet ya, the flame of the divine. Oh, right. Pretty intense. Pretty intense. Mayim rabim You know, they're the great waters cannot quench this love, right? Right. Like the Israeli so, song. <laughs> love offers hope. 
And I think, you know, springtime and Pesach as a national holiday are great signs of hope for the future. But love is what drives most of us in our personal lives. That's what we want to be part of our lives every day. We, we don't necessarily crave miracles the way that many of us crave love in all of its manifest forms. I think that you can't, uh, you know, I, I may never receive a revelation and I may never experience a nace in a conventional sense, but I think that all of us, if we don't have love, um, and that can be, you know, romantic or erotic love. Hope it is for everybody. And and it can be, you know, filial love and parental love and friendship love and and the love of kindness and all these, the, the, the you know, the way people have different words for different sorts of love. Um, you can't you can't live without that. That's for sure. And Shira Shirim comes along and makes that front and center yeah. in the Jewish ritual calendar. Uh, by the way, you know, Rabbi Akiva, in, in, in the in the Mishnah tractate called Yadayim, in which the the quote-unquote uh, defiling the hands, which is a rabbinic way of saying um, it, scriptures are holy enough that if you touch them, your hands acquire a level of ritual impurity. They argue about whether or not books yadayim, and that's how they say that they are or are not canonized. And Rabbi Akiva is the one, as you guys were talking about, just clue in all our listeners here, um, Rabbi Akiva is, is when when somebody says yes, we took a vote and affirmed that Shir Hashirim is of holy status. He says Chas v'Shalom, God forbid, um, because there's never been a day in Israel like the day Asher Nitan Bo Shirat Shir Hashirim li Israel, the, the day in which Shir Hashirim was given to Israel as if it were revealed, which is an amazing comment, right? An amazing comment that this is as if as if, you know, you know that King David wrote uh, um, the Tehillim and Solomon wrote Kohelet um, to Rabbi Akiva, God wrote <laughs> Shir Hashirim. Fascinating. So this is, allows the rabbis to dispose of the, the problematic metaphor in Shirat Hayam of Adonai Yishmael Hamav, God as the God of war, man of war, because now we have a God of love. Well, yeah, God, God of love and, and, and the miracle. The miracle is also the miracle of love. I guess that's what you were saying. I mean, as you were saying, what you were saying, Jeremy, I was thinking, well, you know, there are, yeah, miracles, you know, Muttle the tailor, yeah. he, you know, he met Huddle. That was a miracle too. Wonder of wonder. Miracle. miracle. Well, you're supposed to meet Seidel though, Elliot. That's Seidel, I'm sorry. Seidel took Huddle's boyfriend. That's how. <laughs> that was a miracle too. I love that song. I love that whole show. That show is like the American Jewish sacred text. It's a ca it's canonical. It is canonical. <laughs> One last thing about about Shirashim is that, and it's connected to the Omer. I once heard that that all of the imagery of nature that is in Shirashim, the fruits, the the, the flowers, etc., are things that um, are actually quite active during this time. Mm. The, between Pesach and Shavuot, and and that of course is another aspect. We're not going to you know go into really deeply here, but but we are in the Omer period now, which is itself a a very very interesting um, 
complex period of 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 arrival or or of aspiration, aspiration and movement, which is uh, I think what what is being propelled here in in Shira Shireen, a, a sort of desire and and uh, coming close to to God. Anila Dodi Dodi Li, the sense that there's movement of Israel, the people and God coming together as, as two lovers in this, uh, in, the, in, in this book. And of course, during this time as well. Um, so we're, 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 we're just about ready to conclude here our, our, our conversation, but um, looking forward to, uh, let's just talk for a second. So after Shri and Shmi and Pesach, we are entering a, a complicated time where we, you know, things for for us in, in the organized Jewish world, they, they do, it, don't you get the feeling that the whole, the whole calendar shifts, the whole, the whole rhythm of Jewish life shifts. And, and it does mean that we are turning a, a, a corner on the year. I mean, Jeremy, that's your sense? <laughs> totally. Well, they, we get the yoms, we get that we get the, you know, the, days. the modern, the modern holidays. And, you know, I think, uh, so when I say I've never experienced a nace in a conventional sense, um, I, I do think that the kibbutz galuyot and the gathering of the exiles um, from every country on earth back to the land of Israel, especially for those people of whom there were many who, uh, who literally, <laughs> um, you know, crawled out of concentration camps and responded to the most severe destruction in Jewish history with the most incredibly hopeful uh, act of rebuilding in Jewish history. So I, I do think that if there's a miracle to be reflected on now, it's, it's, uh, it's the events of the middle of the 20th century. Absolutely. Very neat. So we have this um, collision between mythic history preserved in the Bible and perhaps in the early rabbinic period and actual history. So we're going to have in quick succession Yom HaShoah, Yom HaZikaron, the Israeli Memorial Day, and Yom HaTzma'ud, Israeli Independence Day. And then about a few weeks later, we have for many people another day that's made it on the calendar, Yom Yerushalayim, which marks the reunification of Jerusalem under Israeli sovereignty. And these days do not quite fit in what has become the tenor of the Omer, which is a period of semi or quasi mourning, which is, according to tradition, rooted in the plague that befell Rabbi Akiva's students. But I, I heard Jacob Milgram speak many years ago about a relationship between Chamishim, 50, the days of the Omer, and the Chamsin, the Shirako, the desert wind that comes and sweeps in off the Mediterranean and destroys crops in its wake. And it's been a time always fraught with danger that our ancestors struggled with how to explain in some kind of religious way. But what we have today is an imposition of the events of the last 75, let's say 80 years now, um, maybe even that we could go even 90 years. And it's, change the way that we look at everything. And, you know, we do well to remember that, uh, you know, at its bottom, religion has to be rooted in, in life as we know it, not just life as we've inherited it. Well, we are thankful that we are rooted in your lives. <laughs> so we are, um, we're, we really, really appreciate the time that everyone has spent with us 
in our Parsha talk. And um, we want to wish everyone a joyous end of Pesach, beautiful last days. Let's hope for good weather. Let's hope for good times together. If you're able to be in shul, great. If you're not, do it however you do it. Celebrate, be together, enjoy. From all of us, we want to wish everyone a Chag beautiful Pesach, end of Pesach. Enjoy. And thank you so much for watching, and we'll see you soon. Chag Sameach.